You know, we're working through 1 Corinthians, but occasionally we take a week off of 1 Corinthians to look at the Psalms, and so we're going to look at Psalm 3 today, and then uh, in the month of April, we're going to have three sermons or two sermons leading up to Easter and the Easter sermon. And what we're going to ask are some very practical questions that I think people have for Easter. The first week, we're going to ask, why did Jesus have to die? I think a lot of people wonder that. They don't understand uh, why Jesus had to die for us to get forgiveness. The second week, we're going to look at how does the death of Jesus benefit me? You know, what does this guy 2,000 years ago dying over in the Middle East, what does that have to do with me today? So we're going to look at that question on the second week. And then on Easter, we will look at what is the meaning of the resurrection. And so, if you have some people you would like to come and hear those sermons and hear about uh, the sacrifice that we celebrate at Easter and the triumphal resurrection that we celebrate on Easter, then invite them and we'll make it easier for you to invite them with those cards. So I hope you'll look forward to doing that. All right, let's read Psalm 3. If you have your Bible, please turn in it to Psalm 3. I think it's good, uh, it's good to have these words on the wall, but I also think it's great for us to have our Bibles so that we can you know, keep in shape of using them and turn into the right place and all that kind of stuff. Psalm 3. It says it's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is often called a morning prayer. Uh, David refers to sleeping and waking up in the morning, and, and so that's one reason that it's referred to as a morning prayer. But another reason is that this is an excellent way for us to learn to pray. You know, this is a good psalm and a good prayer for those who have enemies. Now, enemies of various sorts, enemies like worry or anxiety or sickness or disease or people, strife at work or at home, and we have internal enemies of laziness, of sinful desires, addictions, and then there's the ever-present enemy of Satan who wants to derail you from serving the Lord that you profess to love, but that he hates so very much. So it says that this is written while David is fleeing from Absalom. Now, I don't think David went outside the city and sat down and said, this is a good time to write a poem. But I think, rather, that after reflecting on what happened when he was fleeing from Amazon, from, from Amazon? From um, Absalom, he, uh, he then composed his thoughts and he, he wrote this wonderful psalm for us. All right, so let me tell you what happened when he f- was uh, fleeing from Absalom. I'll summarize for us. Um, okay, so Absalom 
came and sat at the city gate while, while David was king, and he would tell folks that came for judgment, he would go to them and say, you know, if I were king, I would have ruled in favor of you. <laughs> I would have made sure that justice was done, but what can I do? I'm not king. Well, he captured the heart of the, of the people of Israel that way. He would, he would do what we see, doing, see happening in our politics today. Folks that want you to vote for them will say, here's how you've been mistreated and here's how I'm going to fix it. You know, That's why we have so much division in our politics today because everybody wants you to feel like a victim and that they're going to come to your rescue. Okay? Well, that, that's an old strategy because Absalom was doing it back in this day. He was telling them, look, I, you've been done wrong, but if I had been the judge, this thing would have gone in your favor. So he captured the heart of, of the people of Israel. And then he took one of David's trusted advisors and he got him on his side. And uh, he, he went and said, hey, you guys proclaim that I'm king. And he, and, and he had a group of people surround him and say, Absalom is king. And then he came to get David. Now he was going to kill David and take his throne. So David escaped and fled from Absalom. And then David got advice uh, I mean, David's advisor, who was really, really good at advising the king, told Absalom, here's what you need to do. You need to go now, and you need to capture David while he's running away, and he's scared, and he's discouraged. Right now, you need to go get him. Well, uh, God didn't want that to happen, so he had another advisor there that gave bad advice and said, hey, look, if you go after David, you, you realize who you're talking about going after, right? This is King David. This dude knows how to fight. He knows how to wage war. If you go after him, your people are going to get killed and you're going to get run off. And so he said, okay, well, I won't, I won't go after him yet. Anyway, this led to a confrontation later on where Absalom gathered his forces and David gathered his forces. And uh, Absalom was determined to kill David. But David told his, his folks, don't hurt Absalom. It's, you know, capture him, but don't kill him. Well, that didn't work out and Absalom ended up dying and so this is a tragic and terrible story, okay? Absalom was David's son. David loved him. As a matter of fact, after Absalom died, David said, Oh, I, I wish it were me. I wish I had died instead of my son Absalom. So this whole thing is, is tragic and, and terrible emotionally. And so when I say, Hey, do you have enemies of worry or anxiety and that kind of thing? Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we can pray against those kind of enemies using this psalm. Because it's true that there were people who were after David and wanted to kill him. But it's also true that he had faced terrible discouragement. Uh, you know, his trusted advisor had switched sides on him. Um, he was betrayed. I mean, I'm pretty sure we have all experienced some betrayal from a friend. He was hurt by his rebellious kid. I mean, I think some of us have experienced a kid kind of going rogue and acting crazy, and it hurts us. We love the kid. We'd do anything we could to, to get them back to a sensible place, right? And so we've experienced some of that pain, I think, that David experiences here. So this is the condition under which David was writing. He was, he was discouraged, he was frustrated, he was scared. All these kind of things are going on in his mind. Now we'll read this word in here three different times, I think, that says Selah. Okay, so we got to wonder, what is that? Because, you know, I don't, what English word is that? It's not, is it? 
Well, the, the Hebrew scholars aren't really sure what it means. But there have been a lot of theories, and I've read, I guess, every one of them. And what they say is they're not sure what it means. It may mean uh, up. It may mean to go up in key, to change key. But I think most people think that it means to pause and reflect on what was just said. So, you know, sometimes when we're singing, we will stop singing for a minute, and I'll kind of look over here and, and watch the instrumentalist play. I think that's a Selah moment, okay? What we're doing there is we, we have sung some truth, and we have, we have stated something that is profound and needs to rest, needs to settle for a second. And so while we're digesting that truth that we just sang, uh, we can listen to the instrumentalist play. And so next time there's an instrumental break and you're thinking, man, I, I need to go to lunch. No, think instead, oh, this is a Selah moment and I need to be chewing on what I just sang. All right. So we're going to see that David uses that instruction. Verses 1 and 2 say, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? And you'll notice that this is not a question. That's a, there's an exclamation point there. So he's not saying, how many are my foes? He's saying, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. All right. Are you feeling overwhelmed? I hope you're not. But eventually, you probably will be, right? Whether it's happening right now or whether it's something that's upcoming, eventually most of us feel pretty overwhelmed sometimes. Now what does David do when he feels overwhelmed? Well, the first thing he does is pray. He tells God that he is in trouble. And the worst part of it is that in verse 2, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So people are saying about David, Look, David's not perfect. David's done some things wrong. Uh, there was a guy from Paul's line who, while David was, was fleeing from Absalom, uh, this guy was walking along, calling him names and throwing rocks at him, okay? <laughs> and one of David's men said, hey, why don't I go uh, remove that dude's head? And that's, that's what he said. He said, why don't I go take his head off? And uh, David said, no, no, uh, you know, we'll, we'll let the Lord deal with him. The Lord may have appointed him to to yell at me and may treat me, uh, may give me mercy later on for enduring this. So he was discouraged and there were people telling him, look, David, there's no hope in God because of what you've done. You have, you have been imperfect. Uh, you have sinned. And so God is not going to help you. Let me ask you this. Do you ever start to doubt God's love for you? Have you ever thought that maybe God is sick of bailing you out of your problem? And maybe he won't do it again this time. You know, if your relationship with God is messed up, uh, there is one thing you should do about that. And that is repent of your sins. We know already how you will be received because we read about it in, in the, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, it, it wasn't just that he did a few things wrong. He took his inheritance. You know, he was practically saying, I wish you were dead. I got I to gotta get this money. And he went and blew all of his money and his resources that his dad had intended to leave to him. And so he had, he had insulted his father. He had insulted his family. He had, he had run off and, and used their fortune. And then he came back. And how was he received? Well, the father ran to him, ran to him and embraced him, right? 
and said, hey, you know, put a coat on this guy. He wanted his sin and his dirt and his filth covered up. He wanted a coat put on his son and a ring and all this kind of stuff. So if you are separated from God, if your relationship with God has been messed up by sin, repent of that sin, confess it, and come back to God, and He will receive you like the prodigal son's father received him, with joy, and He will cover up that sin. Prayer helps put problems in perspective. Guys, if we start praying about a problem, the problem will seem smaller as we, as we reflect on who God is. God is so awesome that He can do anything and everything He wants to do. And so if we have a problem, if we have fear, if we have anxiety, if we have somebody is after us, if we have trouble in our family life, all these different things that David was going through, if we have these enemies and we go to God and we start looking at who He is, our problems are going to seem smaller. Now, they still may be legitimate problems, but when we go to God and pray, we're going to kind of put those in perspective. You know, the more you think on the greatness of God, the smaller those problems seem. And let me encourage you to pray candidly. Um, I would never, never, never pray disrespectfully, but it's also not good to pray in a, in a kind of false way. You know how when you're at church and somebody says, how are you doing? And even if you're having a lousy day, you probably say, oh, great, how are you? Okay, that's a real surface level. We need to get past that when we talk to God. God knows what's going on with us, so just, just pray candidly. Um, I heard a woman one time telling me uh, that I, I think, you know, when you're angry at God, you should just rage at God because he already knows you're angry. And, and I thought, Man, that is crazy. I'm not going to be disrespectful. I'm never going to rage at God. Uh, God is smarter than I am. He's better than I am. Uh, he knows what he's doing and I don't. So I would never be disrespectful, but I would be very candid with God and just go to him and say, Lord, you know what is burdening me you know what is hurting me and here is what it is so first thing to do is pray the second thing is remind yourself who you're talking to remind yourself who God is verse three and four say but you O Lord are a shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill Selah okay so he says Hey, here's who God is. God is a shield about me. He is the lifter of my head. He is the one that helps me. And then Selah, right? That means pause and think about that for a second. If you are saved, then God will deliver you. Now, it's not necessarily now that he's going to deliver you. And it's not necessarily in the way you want to be delivered that he'll deliver you. But he will deliver you. Now, it may not be in this life necessarily. And you know, some people think, oh, well, that's a cop-out. That's a consolation prize. I won't help now. <laughs> but God's deliverance in the next life is not, is not a consolation prize. Martyrs have always known this to be true. <clears throat> Let's read back in Daniel. So if you want to flip for a second, go to Daniel 3. I'll give you just a second. Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. We read, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying? They're saying, King, our God can take care of us. Our God will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to worship this false idol. So what did they know that Nebuchadnezzar didn't know? They knew that God could protect them in the fiery furnace. But they also knew that if they were destroyed, if they were burned up in the fiery furnace, God would deliver them anyway because they would be in his care in eternity. So remind yourself who God is. He is the one who walked in the fiery furnace with these guys. He is the one who promised to never leave you or or forsake you. And the ultimate proof, guys, of his unfailing love for you is that he is the one who died on the cross in your place so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life. If we ever doubt for an instant God's love for us, Just look at the cross and you'll never have to doubt it again. The next thing we should do that King David did here was rest in the Lord. Verses 5 and 6 say, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So we need to rest both literally and figuratively in the Lord. When we're exhausted, everything seems worse, doesn't it? Even, even small problems seem big, and big real problems seem terrible. So we need to rest, because God can handle it. The Bible tells us over and over and over not to be afraid. Now sometimes I realize we will be afraid for, for a time anyway. I mean, if we get a horrible health diagnosis, I'm pretty sure we're going to be fearful for a, few, for a little while, right? And so sometimes we'll have good reason to fear, but to the best of our ability, when something we have an enemy coming against us like that, let's pray, let's remind ourselves who God is, and then let's rest in God. We could say a lot more about the wisdom of rest and how Jesus was asleep in the boat on the storm-tossed sea. You know, he knew that his sovereign father was in control of the winds and the waves. He wasn't worried about it. The disciples were freaking out. They were going, oh, man, don't you care that we're about to die? But Jesus, he was sleeping like a baby. He wasn't worried about it, right? So we could uh, learn a lot from Jesus there. You know, he knows that his father's got this thing under control. So we can rest even even in the storm-tossed times. But the next thing is to ask for God's help. Verses 7 and 8 say, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. If you are in Christ, then God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Listen to this prayer that SBC President J.D. Greer often prays. I have this uh, on on the screen of my iPhone so that I can be reminded of this. It says, there is nothing I have done that could make you love me less and nothing that I could do that would make you love me more. Isn't that an amazing truth? You are all I need for everlasting joy. As you have been to me, so I will be to others. As I pray, I'll do so according to the compassion you've shown at the cross and the power you demonstrated through the resurrection. 
That is good theology and immeasurably wonderful truth. He says, there is nothing I have done that could make you love me less. Guys, if we could really embrace that and understand that there is nothing we can do to make God's love less for us if we are in Christ, and nothing that I could do would make you love me more. Coming to church uh, is great. It's good for you. It's faithful to the Lord. The Lord is pleased by you gathering with the saints like he tells you to. But it's not going to make him love you any more than he did. You know why? Because your righteousness is not going to get you love from God. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. But to your account, if you're saved, has been credited the righteousness of Jesus. So you cannot improve on that. That's why God will not love you more or less depending on your behavior. Your two biggest enemies and my two biggest enemies are death and God's judgment. Now, he has already, as we read a second ago, broken. He said, you'll strike him on the cheek. You'll break the teeth of my enemies. He has broken the teeth of death at the resurrection that we're going to celebrate in a few weeks. There is no breaking the teeth of God's judgment, but he has already experienced God's judgment so that you won't have to. So let me tell you uh, a little more about that. The gospel is that we have lived a life of sin and rebellion against God. Now, I know some of you say, well, no, I've, I've been a pretty good person. You know, I was saved when I was eight. And so, really, I, haven't, I, haven't, I don't have a dramatic story of salvation. But if we really see who God is and we really see who we are, we can see in the Scripture, even if not from experience, and I hope we can from experience, see that we have rebelled against God. We have, uh, you know, God created us. He, he has the right to tell us, anything he wants as far as what we're to do and not do. And when we sin, R.C. Sproul calls that sin cosmic treason because our king and our creator has said, do this, don't do this. And we shake our puny little fist at him and say, we're going to do what we want to do. That is sin and rebellion. And that has put us in an adversarial role with God. And so what God did was he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect, righteous, holy life that we couldn't live and to die in our place, a death that he didn't deserve, but each one of us deserves. And he is willing to, by faith, grant you the righteousness of Christ and to take your own sin and put that on the account of Jesus, which he paid for at the cross. So in light of that, guys, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a few minutes, and we are going to um, commemorate the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Now, what I would love to do is invite you to accept that gift of eternal life before we do. I know most of you here are believers. Most of you here are in Christ. But if there's anyone who is not, or even if you're just not sure, and you say, I need to know more information about this, I would invite you, as Brother Jimmy comes and Steve comes, to uh, sing. We're going to have that moment of invitation before we do the Lord's Supper. So let's stand.